Welcome to the Lawful Assembly podcast, a show about the intersection of law, religion, and activism. It is hosted by lawyer and activist Reverend Craig Moosen. It's produced by the Division of Mission and Ministry at DePaul University. Craig, it's been a while since we uh, recorded, and there has been a frenetic amount of activity around immigration and refugees, uh, especially in refugee law during the last days of the Trump administration and in the first days of the Biden administration. So help us sort out where we are now, what's happening. Happy New Year, Brian. I guess that's the... (laughs) Right. The first way to start. Uh, We're in a whirlwind. There was significant amount of changes to immigration law in the last few months of the Trump administration. And President Biden started off with a number of executive orders and a proposed substantive change and reform of immigration law. It's been a whirlwind. In the midst of this tempest, President Biden paused most removals or deportations from this nation for the next 100 days to allow the federal agencies to investigate, review, and determine the best steps for going forward. I suggest that for those of us involved with the DePaul mission, those of us from faith communities that are interested in immigrant and refugee issues, we should also pause. There have been so many changes that no one podcast can address that. And I want to address today, at least, how do we think about the changes that are happening to immigration and adjudication of asylum and refugee issues in the United States? As we look back, the Trump administration implemented and proposed over 400 changes to immigration law up to the very last days of his administration. It's important to recognize these changes came through many different vehicles. Our previous podcasts dealt with a number of proposed changes in regulations. Some of those have been implemented, some of those have been enjoined, and we'll talk about that in a subsequent podcast. There were also many executive orders. Perhaps one of the most famous was the Muslim transit ban issued in the very first days of the Trump administration. But subsequent orders also impacted asylum procedures and substantive asylum law. There were changes in policy and how to file and to engage the procedures, both for lawful immigration and for adjudication of asylum applications. Some claim that these policy changes were so dramatic that, in effect, they dismantled our commitment to grant asylum to refugees fleeing persecution. There were changes in administrative law. The attorney general, under the immigration law, can issue binding legal decisions, and the attorney generals under President Trump issued several that dramatically restricted eligibility for asylum. There were many changes in enforcement policies and the discretion law enforcement agencies use in enforcing the law. The result, we had fewer refugees resettled, asylum almost stopped, at least at our border, and even lawful immigration had the lowest numbers of persons able to rejoin families or gain employment through our lawful procedures under this administration. Let's talk about the Biden plan. What's what's he doing? On his first day in office, he issued a number of executive orders, one of which I mentioned, the holding off deportations for 100 days to allow his officials to investigate, plan, and propose the best procedures. Uh, Other executive orders was to end the Muslim transit ban. 
He will make leadership changes in a number of the agencies. We'll have a new attorney general, a new secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. President Biden will also submit a major immigration reform bill, something this nation has needed for a number of years. So on all aspects, legislatively, executive orders, regulatory change, and staffing changes, Biden seeks to reform and welcome lawful immigrants and establish a fair process for asylum adjudication. He's also promised to resettle upwards of 100,000 refugees again to restore our place as a leader in welcoming refugees from persecution. He will face significant opposition in Congress, in part because of this polarization our nation has experienced in finding the right solution for immigration. The national immigration debate has been polarized for a very long time. What can we do to avoid that sort of polarization right now? Is there anything we can do? Brian, the polarization debate in simple terms has been greater enforcement versus greater hospitality. In one sense, we've debated this as a nation of immigrants for several hundred years. Up to the 20th century, we virtually had no federal immigration law that restricted individuals coming to our country. Since the early 1900s, we've had a debate over who can come into the country and how fast they can become citizens. In the last 30 years, the polarization has been greater enforcement, detention, and deportation, or greater hospitality. But polarization ignores how interconnected our world is. Most individuals hearing about the Muslim ban think it simply stopped certain individuals from predominantly Muslim countries, uh, mostly refugees, but also lawful immigrants, from entering the United States. I've already heard since this ban was lifted, of examples where U.S. citizens have been unable to lawfully petition for their family members who were eligible under our immigration laws because of the ban. The ban, with an intent aimed at refugees, was keeping American families from reuniting with other family members. We live in an interconnected world. And we need this pause to think about how to answer your question of breaking polarization. I suggest for those persons that follow the DePaul mission or those persons from faith community, use this 100 days to think about and to figure out a way to address that issue. I was struck by the Reverend Dr. Sylvester Beeman's benediction at the inauguration pastor from the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in Delaware and a longtime friend of the new president, opened his benediction talking about our common humanity, who we are as a nation. If you listen closely to his benediction, he recognized the indigenous who first lived on our land. He acknowledged the slaves who built the capital in what he called a citadel to liberty and democracy. He recognized that we, the people, include individuals living here since the 1600s to people who have just recently become citizens. He recognized the immigrants who built our nation. But he also recognized that most of us, many of us, have come from those individuals who have made up we, the people. And we need to recognize that common humanity. I recall that Abraham Lincoln, as he was setting on a path toward the presidency, had to argue 
against many nativists in his time, who many of them made up the Know Nothing Nativist Party. Many of the Know Nothings claim that only persons who could look back in their own ancestry to those who helped found this nation had a right to call themselves Americans. And Lincoln pointed out in 1858 that more than half the nation was composed of immigrants who had since arrived after our founding. And yet he was excited that those immigrants and those children of immigrants understood better than the know-nothings what the Declaration of Independence said, that all are created equal. It was their spirit, their energy, and their willingness to join us in that experiment of democracy that helped make us a stronger nation. Lincoln also taught us something else at that time. Gary Wills mentions that in the great debate that Lincoln faced, whether he had the authority to issue an Emancipation Proclamation, and whom should that Emancipation Proclamation be addressed to, pointed out that Lincoln understood something that many did not understand. Lincoln realized through the tragedy of slavery how much slaves had helped build this country. And Lincoln wanted to free slaves as much for those contributions. In Will's words, he wanted to, quote, avoid the condescension of doing things for the slaves. Instead, he had a humble recognition of what we owed the slaves. I suggest we have an obligation as we want to break this issue of polarization It's not just something we do for immigrants or do for refugees, but to recognize how much immigrants and refugees have not only just physically built our country, but have added to our concept of democracy. I'm often humbled when I work with refugees in their asylum cases, and they describe their political activity that has put them in a position to become persecuted. I wonder if I'd have the courage to do the same to risk my life or my family's well-being for a political position. Or when I work with a, a religious activist who, because of their faith, were persecuted in their homeland. Is my faith strong enough? Yet in working with them, they have enriched and inspired my faith and my political opinion. We owe much to those immigrants and refugees. And perhaps we can start to break this cycle of polarization by shifting our mindset of how much we owe them instead of doing something for them. When we talk about DePaul's mission, is there anything we can use to address the issue of polarization and immigration? Absolutely, Brian. One of the key elements that transformed the ministry of St. Vincent DePaul came when he realized In a very polarized society, if we think back to the 1600s, peasants living in rural areas with with very little poverty in Paris, children abandoned in the streets, that all too often in polarized situations, we divide human beings into rich and poor, valuable and not so valuable. And St. Vincent de Paul recognized that all of us created in God's image are equal and dedicated much of the remainder of his ministry to fulfilling that point. When the Hebrew poet in Genesis penned those words that we are all created in God's image, made it clear that it was all humanity. It gets back to Reverend Dr. Beeman's benediction, common humanity. And if 
we're all created in the image of God. We have an obligation to address that. I would add that the etymology of the benediction, the benediction that Reverend Dr. Beeman gave, contains an action verb, to do good, to do a blessing, to perform a task. So the benediction doesn't just end an inauguration, it sends us forth. And St. Vincent sent us forth. St. Vincent sent us out into the streets, into the communities, to deal with our common humanity, to heal and reconcile how astray we've become when we concentrate on the artificiality of borders, that somehow the person on the other side is different than me. How many billions of dollars have been spent in the last four years pouring some concrete in a desert to create a wall instead of fixing our infrastructure, our railways, our roads, our bridges? A wall that even many experts said will not solve the problem. We created a wall out of COVID, even though public health experts told us that sending people back into Mexico instead of having a place where public health could deal with the issue was going to exacerbate the consequences of COVID. Instead, as St. Vincent told us, to go out and to be active, to be involved with healing and reconciling. So where do we go from here? Let's take this 100 days to investigate how best to address our common humanity. In terms of our nation, how do we reconcile with the indigenous whose land we live on? How do we repair for all the work that the slaves conducted? How do we repair for how their lives were damaged and destroyed? How do we respect the work of the farm workers or the Chinese laborers who built many of our railroads? One way is in healing and reconciling of acting out that blessing we've been given to address our common humanity to find a new way and not fall into the trap of polarization. Thank you, Craig. Thank you, Brian. Thank you for listening. This podcast is not intended as legal advice. If you'd like to learn more or check out the reference materials, please look at the show notes at blogs.depaul.edu slash DMM.